As we begin a series through Hosea, I have absolutely no idea how many sermons it's going to be. I know a few, I've already plotted out a number of weeks, but haven't plotted the whole book as of yet. This evening we'll consider only the first verse as means of introduction into this prophecy, but we will take up a number of matters that are covered across the entire uh, the entire prophecy, all 14 chapters. So I'm just going to read Hosea 1.1 as we begin a new study into what is indeed in trust and pray that it will be an encouragement to us, to you as God's people. Hosea chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading only verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Using the words of one of the commentaries that I have consulted as I work through this introductory section of this particular book, he offers to us what is indeed words of hope, capturing really the essence of what this prophecy is going to communicate. He says the following, in the message of Hosea, we see... The passion of God. We see the jealousy of God, the commitment of God, the heartbreak of God, the enthusiasm of God, the love of God. People often talk about what they feel about God. Hosea tells us what God feels about us. So... Do not expect to find in this book what to do when your boss irritates you or frustrates you at work or what to do when your child misbehaves. But do expect to discover this, that God is passionate for his people. Expect to find, scattered throughout these 14 chapters, that God is passionate. He is a God of enduring, infinite love. For his people. Now it is one thing, of course, to reflect on the miserable conditions of our lives, our fallen state, and the many ways in which we fall short of God's glory. We know these things to be true. It is true that we are, as Jesus has told us, that we are unprofitable servants, even on our best day. We've only done our duty. We've done nothing more, for we owe God everything. But what we often forget, I fear, What you may often forget is that God's love is not dependent on your faithfulness. Let me say that again. God's love for you is not dependent on your faithfulness. God has placed his eternal love upon you. It is not dependent on you. In fact, God's love comes through more clearly to an unfaithful people. Time and time again, through the canon of God's word, we see it over and over again. An unfaithful people and a loving God who spares them. An unfaithful people and a loving God who comes to them to rescue them. Time and again, throughout the corpus of, throughout the entirety of the canon of scripture, this is what we witness over and over and over again. In this book, particularly, we see the covenant people, the visible church. We see them behaving quite badly, actually, very badly. Yet God, though offended by their adultery, 
continues to remind them of his favor for them. Yes, he warns. Yes, he expresses his displeasure. But he continues to love them anyway. In fact, you and I are much like the people of Hosea's day. You hear God, and you are warned. Week after week from this pulpit, you hear the warnings of Scripture. You hear the things that are said, the applications that are made, sometimes in pointed ways. You falter. If you're like me, you falter and sometimes fail. And you seek God's forgiveness, of course. Why? Because He moves you to do so. He moves you to draw near to Him. It is throughout our entire life, your life, throughout it all, it is the never-changing love of God for you that must always be remembered. You see, the gospel is in front of you every day. The cross of Christ is always present for you. And the book of Hosea is indeed the gospel of the Old Testament. Now, the context is such that there's no context. We're in the first verse. All we have from the first verse is the reference to the prophecy and who himself, the author of it, the one who is giving it. We'll deal with the substance and context of the matter in a few moments. But it's enough to say that this is the word of the Lord that comes to the people. Hosea is merely a mediator of the word of the covenant God and his love for them given to them. A people who are very unlovely, behaving in a very unlovely way. But God's love remains upon them. And so this evening, by way of introduction into the entirety of this prophecy, I want to show you the prophet and his message. By way of introduction to what is the gospel of the Old Testament. I want to show you the prophet and his message by way of introduction to what is the gospel of the Old Testament. Testament. Two points as we consider very much introductory matters. We're going to move in and out of various passages throughout the prophecy, uh, all of it uh, designed to help us get our mind around these 14 chapters uh, of comfort and hope to an unlovely people. First, we're going to consider the identification of the prophets, and then we will consider the prophet's message. The identification of the prophets, and then the prophet's Message. Let's first consider this prophet, this man who is named. It's given there. We know it there in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Now, for most of us, names don't really mean much. Most of us, some of us, yes, have been named for some, for some specific reason or for some specific purpose. Our parents named us for one reason or another, usually with little thought to the etymology of the name or its even meaning. For instance, my name, William, means resolute protector. And it's very doubtful that my parents had any idea or any knowledge of that when they chose to name me. More important to the fact was that I was named after my father, hence I am William Hill Jr. But the Bible doesn't use names this way. In many cases, 
Names have specific reasons, specific purpose. You just heard in the words of Genesis chapter 30 in the birth wars between Leah and Rachel, you noted how the names were given based on certain circumstances that affected the giving of the name. Oftentimes this is the case. Isaac, the son of promise, was named. His name means laughter. Why was that? Well, because Sarah laughed. Abraham laughed. What did they laugh at? The promise that God made that they were going to have a child in their old age. Names in the Bible often, not always, but often carry with its significance. So the name here is Hosea. The meaning of his name, the root of this name means, note, it's important because it lines right up with the prophecy, just so happens. His name means God has saved. It is formed from a lengthened root for Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. From Joshua, we don't have too far to go to get to Jesus, the anointed one, Jehovah saves. Hosea's name means something to the people. It's that perpetual reminder as he's prophesying to the people that his name alone carries with it the message that he is going to communicate to an unlovely people. And it is God himself who saves, he redeems, who rescues sinners. Now, as background, we don't know much for certain. Lots of speculation here, lots of discussion as to what he did, what, who he was, all this business. Most of our guesses would be just that, just guesses. But what we do know is that he was from the northern kingdom and prophesied primarily to his countrymen, which is to say that this is a prophecy primarily uh, to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. Now, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 5, however, uh, we see how he makes reference to this. On that day, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, and he goes on to describe what seems to be that reference to the northern tribe. We'll get into that more as we work through the book. It's enough to say that he is dealing with the ten tribes of Israel that will soon fall to the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. This gives us some proximity and chronology as to the dating of Hosea. It tells us that this prophecy is pre-exilic. What does that mean? It means it's pre-exile. Prior to the Assyrians taking the northern kingdom away, Hosea is, extent, is issuing this prophecy, a prophecy of hope with the interlude period of which the ten tribes are in exile. Now, what is his profession? Well, what is his job? And how did he get it? For most of you, you have your job because you applied, you interviewed, and were hired. Not so with the prophets. That is not how it works. There wasn't some HR department in which some Yahoo of Israel went down there because he thought he had nothing better to do with his life and decided to apply for the office of prophet or for the job of prophet. No, it's a calling. Hosea was called of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. 
Hosea was called of God. It was a divine call. No pedigree was required to be a prophet, unlike the office of king and the office of priest. In order to be a priest in the days of, uh, uh, in the, days of the Old Testament, you had to be in the line of Aaron. You had to be a Levite. No Levite, no heritage in the Levite tribe, no priesthood for you, regardless of how much you might want it. You cannot be one. Same for the king. Passed on from family line to family line, from bloodline to bloodline, but with the prophet there was no need and no necessity of pedigree. All that was required to be a prophet of God was the calling of God upon them. His duty, of course, as a prophet, was to speak the word of the Lord that was given to him to speak. This is true about all the prophets, not just Hosea. Notice how the book begins with those very pointed words, striking words that should get our attention. The word of the Lord, notice the word of Yahweh, Jehovah, came to Hosea. This is God's word that he is to proclaim to the people. The duty of the prophet was to speak the word of the Lord that was given to them to speak. That is to say that they are not to go off on their own little tangents. They are not to go off and say whatever they think they ought to say. They are to, as it is in the Greek, they are to keruso, they are to herald the word of the king and not their word. Put a different way, you can read the book of Hosea. Frankly, you can read every prophecy and just take the prophet right out of the equation and listen because what you're hearing is the very word of God speaking to you. And that's what he's doing. There are times throughout the book of Hosea that you're going to have a hard time ascertaining the difference. Whether God himself is speaking or Hosea is writing. And now Hosea is writing, but God is speaking. But what is it that a prophet does? Most of us are tempted to think that a prophet, their primary function in the life of Israel is to be guys that would tell the future. Foretelling, to put it a different way. And that is true, that prophets often told the future and predicted events that would happen. It was one of the tests in which they were evaluated as men of God who spoke the truth of God. If they spoke that God said such and such would happen and it doesn't happen, guess what? Doom. Not a prophet of the Lord. That was not their primary function. Their primary function was that other word that begins with F, forth-telling. Put a different way, in our modern parlance, they were to preach. They were to preach the word of the Lord. Their main responsibility was to preach the word of the Lord to the people. Perhaps the most famous sermon preached by a prophet, and of course that's a subjective opinion, I realize. You may have a different opinion, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the point. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, you have what is known as the Temple Sermon of Jeremiah. He is told, indeed, the word of the Lord that came, the word that came from Jeremiah, to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, 
all you men of Judah who enters these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. The prophet was to preach, he was to proclaim, he was to speak the word of the Lord into the ears of the people of the Lord. Sometimes they were heard, sometimes people responded, and sometimes, oftentimes, they did not. Using again Jeremiah's temple sermon in Jeremiah 7, later in Jeremiah, we see that same sermon repeated. It's not a repeat as he preached it twice, but it's expanded to show that the people hearing the very word of the Lord did not listen to him and sought to kill him. The people in Hosea's day will not hear this, and they will be exiled by the Assyrians, but they will not be forgotten. They will not be sidelined. God will still remember them because of his eternal love he puts upon them. One commentator reflecting on the purpose and function of a prophet says this, quote, a prophet is one who has been spoken to and who in turn conveys the divine message to men. The only legitimate prophetic word, whether predicting the future Exposing sin or inviting repentance was thus, says the Lord God. That is what preaching is. No, I may not preach a sermon. Men may not preach sermons and start their sermons. Thus saith the Lord. They may not use that language, but the point is the same. To herald, to Russo, to forth tell the word of the Lord is to speak what the word of the Lord says and not what their feeble brains want it to say. The prophet's main function then therefore was to communicate to the people, to proclaim to the people the authoritative message that comes from he who is authoritative, only authoritative in heaven and earth, and that is the God of heaven. And thus, therefore, he, that prophet, has authority. He has authority. Because, first, he is called by God and given, then, second, the word of God to speak. He carries with him the authoritative message of the God of heaven. Now, the context of the prophet's message. Just very simply, this is not going to be expanded upon. We'll deal with more of these items as we work through the prophecy. But you note in verse 1 that three kings, four kings are mentioned. Three of them, interestingly, are southern kings. It's only the last one, Jeroboam, that is the son of Joash, He's the northern king. The period of time that is covered in this prophecy that Hosea gives to the people in these 14 chapters is roughly or approximately 100 years. So this puts us somewhere back 100 years or maybe a little more prior to the exile by the Assyrians. But what's the message? What is he going to tell them? Obviously, we'll deal with 
specific elements and matters of the prophecy as we work through it. But to give you just some structure and understanding of the context of the book, at least up front, it is important to at least see something of his message. One commentator says the message of Hosea is primarily addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. There are, however, a number of references to the southern kingdom of Judah. What's the culture and the context of the day and age in which he is prophesying? This may shock you. Shocked me. Most scholars agree that this prophecy comes at the end of what is known as the golden age of prosperity. The people are prospering. The people are richly blessed. The people are enjoying many different things. It appears, at least on the surface, that they're experiencing God's blessing, yet they were living in very sinful ways. God was withholding his judgment against them. He continues to appeal to them through the voice of the prophet that they might turn and repent, but they are living very much in an age of prosperity. Again, quoting one commentator, he says, During this period, Hosea's message must have sounded unlikely. What? God's going to judge us? Doesn't look that way. Everything's fine. No meteors falling from the sky. No one's dropping dead at the temple. Earthquakes aren't occurring across the land. No famine. We got plenty of bread. We're prospering and childbearing. Lots of good things are happening. What are you talking about, Hosea? How can you possibly say that God is going to judge us? Hosea's message must have sounded very unlikely to the initial recipients. Hosea announced God's judgment in a time when all anyone could see was God's blessing. We're not, much, we're not unlike these people. It is easy, isn't it? Just like in those days, it is easy in our day, especially in the United States, where the church has experienced, as it seems, the blessing of God for many years to be lulled into a false sense of security. They were. Are you better than them? people that Hosea is talking to were lulled into a false sense of security. They don't see meteors falling from the sky. They don't see God's judgment. Therefore, we must be doing everything right. And we know for a fact that they weren't. You see, it was God's patience. It was his love that was staying his hand against them, even giving to them good things, even though through it all they were living lives of evil and wickedness. The same is for us. We do not see God's judgment, so we assume that all must be well, when in fact we know it isn't. We know, you know, you're not being obedient to God's commands. How often have I said from this pulpit how important it is, I know you're going to get sick of hearing me say this, but uh, I'm going to keep pushing this subject because the Bible does. Idolatry is one thing. That's easy. It's all over Hosea. That's not a problem. That's easy to identify. And there's not a person in this room that would question the fact that God's judgment fell upon the idolatrous people in Hosea's day. 
It starts out that way. The entirety of the book is framed around that subject. What is often missed and ignored is the second most common reason God judges His people. And that is profaning the Lord's Day, the Sabbath that He has established in the fourth commandment. We get lulled into a false sense of security. Well, you know, we go to the restaurants on the Lord's Day. We profane that holy day, and God doesn't kill me, so everything must be fine. God hasn't taken my house away. My children are healthy. I still have my job. I've still got food in the refrigerator. There's no problem. This is the kind of people Hosea is talking to. They've been lulled into a false sense of security. They're not really seeking God's kingdom, but God is patient with them and loving them anyway. They're not really seeking His will, but God is patient and loving them anyway. They are not seeking what He wants, but He is patient and loving them anyway. But His patience is running out. We, might, we must not be lulled into a false sense of security. We must hear the word of the Lord. and We must make those necessary adjustments, not... When we make those necessary adjustments that we might prove then, therefore, our love for him who has loved us, loved us to the end. Too often in the Christian life, too often in the church of our modern age, nothing bad seems to be happening, so what do we do? We put ourselves in cruise control. We sail happily along without a care in the world. And we ignore the calling of the prophets we ignore the word preached and proclaimed that danger is on the horizon if we do not, as Jeremiah told the people, amend our ways and our actions. Again, just because you don't see the world collapsing in two, and the stars falling from the sky does not mean everything is fine. It wasn't in his day, and it isn't today. Now, what is the message of the book itself? Well, first, the structure. This is going to be somewhat academic. I recognize it's what happens when you start a series in a book. It should help you, however, as we work through the book, to see these things now, because the interpretation of everything that happens is going to, be, is going to, be, is going to revolve around these matters. The structure, first, it is difficult to ascertain a detailed structure. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament are like that. You read it, and you're, you know, I don't know what's going on. The chronology isn't exactly linear. It bounces around. It moves around. Most prophecies are that way. That's why, the, that's why God gave you pastors and elders to help teach you these things. I remember in seminary trying to ascertain the various structures and, and, and chronologies of the prophets. It was, it was hard. It's much easier in Joshua. But the prophets, that's not their point or even their goal. But there is somewhat of a structure that we can see or at least take note of. First, we have Hosea's marriage in the first three chapters. These are foundational chapters. They set the stage. They set the whole arguments for the rest of the book. That marriage that happens between Hosea and Gomer. 
Now, you can wrestle with the reality of that. You can question it. You can challenge it. You can be, even as Calvin wrongly says, that this is just allegory. I believe this happened. There's no reason to take that marriage in those first three chapters as anything but real, as an object lesson, not only of the judgment of God, but also of his enduring love for the people. Second, in chapters 4 through 11, there are really two cycles of judgment and hope. There's a cycle of judgment, and then hope comes, and then another cycle of judgment, and then hope comes. God doesn't leave his covenant people beaten into the ground, but he extends to them himself throughout it. As bad as the things are, as bad as the way they're living, God continues to extend himself to them. He continues to woo them to himself. There are some themes that are present throughout this book. I love biblical theology, so here we go. One scholar mentions three, three real, three indictments first that come against the covenant people. In chapters 4 through 6, verse 3, we have the indictment of a lack of knowledge. They don't know. They haven't been taught. Second, in chapter 6, verse 4, through chapter 11, verse 11, we have a lack of love. Love to who? Love to their covenant God, the redeeming God. They don't love him. And how do we know? Because they weren't doing what he's told them. Third, there is a lack of faithfulness. Chapter 11, verse 12, and into chapter 14. They're faithful to many things, to the Baals, to the idols of their day, but they are not faithful to the God who redeemed them. There are also here in this book some general categories that are important to note. First, there's the category of spiritual adultery. This is highlighted by the idolatry that is indicated in the real events of Hosea's life and the numerous references to it throughout the book. In fact, the term or words, to quote one scholar, the term or words for prostitution occurs in a metaphorical sense, get this, 15 times. Throughout the book. Now, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but there's only 14 chapters. So that tells me that it averages a little over one time per chapter. Which is to say it's probably a central theme of the book. Spiritual adultery. Another theme and generalized category is one of God's bride. That is to say the people of God. They are often referred to as that unfaithful bride, and in some cases is referenced as the children of God. We note that in chapter 1 and verse 10, chapter 11 and verse 1, 4, and 10. Regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their unfaithfulness, regardless of their lack of love for God, he continues to refer to them as his bride. Unfaithful as they may be, He refers to them and continues to refer to them as children of God, unfaithful as they may be. He still sees them differently than he sees the wicked and the pagan of the world. 
They're his. That is his bride acting stupidly. It is his children acting badly. And his love for them continues throughout. We see, of course, as any good father would do, we see God's hand of judgment. God, mindful of his own glory first and foremost, but also mindful of them, judges them that they might be restored to him, that they might, through the discipline of God's hand, turn their hearts to him once again. And finally, fourth, again, all from one guy that's brilliant and I'm not, a faithful love in restoration. You might think, that is so weird. How is it that the God of heaven would issue this prophecy to an unfaithful people to express his love and faithfulness to them, regardless of the fact of the way they're behaving, regardless of the way they're acting? Why would he do that? Because that's who he is. You see, his faithfulness to them isn't dependent upon their unfaithfulness or faithfulness. It doesn't change him at all. And his love for them is unmoved regardless of their behavior. He continues to show it to them, even as he does it for us today. Yes, it is true that an indictment is issued against the faithless bride of God. But yet in the face of it is the eternal hope of God's love. It never stops throughout the book. It never wavers. It never changes. It isn't fickle like ours. Your love and my love, we are fickle people. Our love for people and love for God changes when the wind blows. When the storms come, in good times and bad times, God's love for us, that's not how it works. God shows his love to them despite the fact that they're acting poorly acting badly, acting unfaithfully, not loving him, not giving to him what he deserves. He is still loving them. And it is his love that woos these people, his covenant people, back to him. He is not going to let them go. He is not going to abandon them. He loves them even to the end. As with these people, so he is with you. As he is with these people, so he is to you. The message of hope of Hosea is that God's love does not change regardless of your behavior, your actions, your lack of faithfulness, your lack of love. His love is not determined by your faithfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that because if it were, I'm in, I'd be in big trouble. And you know, so would you. How often have we disappointed our Father in heaven? How often have we fallen short of what He has demanded of us? How often have we done things we know we shouldn't do and we do it anyway? And how often has that been true of us? God's love does not change. God's love does not grow cold. His love is not determined by your faithfulness. Yes, he wants you to love him because of his love for you. 
but his love will not change for you regardless. This is the God of Hosea's day. This is the message of Hosea. In the ugliness of the prophecy at times, you're going to see that pretty much right out of the gate. Even in the ugliness of it, God's love abides for them. This is the God of Hosea's day. Brothers and sisters, this is your God today. He has not changed. Not at all. So tell me why you don't love him. Why would you not? No, indeed, just like the people of Hosea's day, we too are called to love him because he first loved us and continues to love us. We praise him. Why? Because he is Jehovah who saves you. We praise him because he is Jehovah who saves you. We love him because he is Jehovah who saves you. We give to him our whole life because he is Jehovah who saves you. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we are humbled at the simple truth that your love never wavers, never for us. You have given us, demonstrated your love eternally by giving us your Son. You have promised to us great things. We confess to you that we are often faithless. And we thank you that our, your love for us doesn't depend on us, but it depends on you. And we only pray, Father, that you would help us. That we would see something of your love for us in this book and in turn, look to you with great affection, love indeed, by doing that which you tell us. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.